0: All right, Bethel Church, it's good to be here with you this morning, and uh, and uh, as Pastor Tony said, I'm the pastor of Connections here, so my role is really just to help people take their next steps. If you're here as a first-time guest, we want to welcome you. Um, I think highly of Bethel Church, not just because they uh, help us pay our bills and, and give us a paycheck, but because God has transformed my life here in the year and a half I've been here. I've seen God grow us as a family, grow me individually, grow my wife individually, and uh, and as well, our, our kids, um, seeing them grow in, in the grace and knowledge of uh, Jesus Christ. So if you're looking for a church, we want to say, come on, be a part of Bethel and, uh, and check us out. Keep coming for a while and, and get to see if this is the right place for you. Also, um, I'll, I'll mention this, if you're here for the first time Um, I'd like to meet you after, after the service too. We have a little gift for you just to say thanks for coming and, um, would love to connect with you. And also for the church at large, if I've never met you before, please come and see me after the service so I can get to know you so I can meet you and I can put a face with a name and, and that sort of thing. I do love to get to know new people and I try my best to remember names and remember faces and, uh, that sort of thing. And so, um, also, just a little bit about me. I have—I'll uh, give you a little bit of background in case you guys don't know who I am. Uh, I have three little boys. Uh, Isaac is seven, and uh, he's like going on forty. He's like a little man and wears his glasses and very astute kid, a thinker, um, but a lot of fun. He's a lot of fun and um, is a joy to be around and. Uh, Deacon is our two-year-old, almost three-year-old, and he is a live wire. I think he might be in here right now. So, um, <laughs> uh, and, that, and that says a lot to, uh, to who he is, the type of personality he is, is that um, he is his own guy and very vocal. We think he's got a future in cage fighting or something like that. <laughs> Uh, I don't know if you've seen Ace Ventura: When Nature Calls, but that little what Choo guy, Tommy Davidson plays the character. They bring him out in a knapsack, and he's just like this. Raw, raw. That's Deacon, and so you don't want to mess with him; he'll take you down. And then Israel is our baby. He's 15 months old, and uh, he's walking and talking. And um, I'll say this: he does have a little bit better of a vocabulary than Pastor Steve's daughter, and uh, that's a that's a plus. So. Um, he says, "Dad, Dad, Mama, and bye." So, anyway, and then he said, "Super califragilistic be The other day, that was pretty cool. He's got a good vocabulary, but here's the thing: my my kids, yeah, I love them. That's that's really one of the things I, I'm most passionate about. Uh, besides uh, helping people know Jesus and come to know Jesus, are my kids and my wife, Jema, who we've been married for 11 years. Uh, she's my best friend and uh, we in, we enjoy hanging out together and we've had a lot of fun times in those 11 years And so uh, they're here today. So if you if you get a chance to once again meet me I want you to meet her as well So i'm not actually here to give a personal bio background, but I want to talk to you from god's word But first of all off, off I just want to ask is anybody here excited about christmas anyone? Yeah, a few of you how many of you are on the other side of not so much, right? Yeah few of us. Uh, I'm not really a big, uh, the whole season of Christmas and having to fight the crowds and that sort of thing. But you might be the type of person that from November 1st, you've been drinking eggnog, you've been listening to Christmas music. You are like Buddy the Elf, you know, and you're you're just happy about it. And you got your tree up, got all the lights all up in your house. It looks like Clark Griswold just went to town on your house, right? You are excited about Christmas. And maybe you look like my friend up here all uh, 25 days of Christmas. In that, you're pretty excited. And whenever you hear Black Friday, you hear the Rocky theme song in your mind. You are the trampler, not the not the trampoline, right? You go in and you you uh, you, you take some names and uh, you you make it happen. And so Christmas is your thing. You're excited about it. And then comes Christmas Day, and you're and you're, and you're ready for that big day. And if it's anything like our house, it's a, it's a scenario like this where uh, our kids are up at like 4.30 in the morning. Like Jesus is not even up at that time, you know? And they're like, Dad, Santa came, Santa came! And they run down and it's like an event of tornadic proportions. And uh, I think we have a picture of Isaac from last Christmas. That's in real time. You can't even see his hands. It's amazing. And so... Uh, that was our scene at our house. And that'll probably be the scene. Um, and, and Deacon being almost three, I'm sure it's going to be a lot of fun this year. And so with this excitement, they go into ripping up every gift. And last Christmas, though, Isaac got to the place where after he got done with all the gifts, I looked over and he looked really sad. I said, son, what's going on? What's wrong? And he, he said, dad, I, I just I feel sad. And, uh, and Isaac's kind of dramatic. And I don't know where he gets that from. Probably his mom. And uh, so... <laughs> He starts frowning and he does this with his eyes. He's putting away tears. And I said, what's going on, buddy? He said, you know what? I thought I would be happy after he got all these gifts open, but I'm kind of sad. And, uh, you know, the reason why... And it was, a, it was an opportunity for me to tell him the reason why is because there's no gift in Christmas that can truly satisfy. The only gift at Christmas is Jesus Christ that can truly satisfy. And we're surrounded by so many sights and sounds and, and, and uh, things going on around us that says Christmas is all about me, right? It's all about you and what you can get and what you need and really, more importantly, what you want. Uh, and, um, and, and we also can even look at the Christmas story and say, you know what? That's about me. Jesus in the stable, that's about me. That's about my redemption. And it's true. Jesus Christ did come to this earth to redeem us, did he not? But it's a bigger story. And the bigger story is that God the Father did all of it to bring glory to his name and spread the fame of his Son among the nations. So here's my big idea for you that I want to unpack with you today. The Father does everything for the fame and glory of his Son, and so should we. We're going to look at Colossians chapter 1 today. If you have your Bibles, turn there with me. If you don't have a Bible, there may be one in the, in the seat in front of you. And uh, if there haps, there's not, okay, never mind. Um, if you don't have a Bible, just watch the screen, okay? And if you need one, please go to our uh, Welcome Center, and we have Bibles out there, and we, we'll give that as a gift to you. We want you to have a Bible and something that you can read daily. Uh, for wisdom and insight to your life. So Colossians chapter 1, if you'll turn there with me, we're going to look at our text. And our text really uh, explains why the Father does everything for the fame and glory of His Son and why we should too. The Apostle Paul writing this letter out of a concern that the Colossians did not fully understand the deity and the lordship of Jesus Christ. He was concerned that they, that uh, of their combining of Jewish and Gentile religions to create this kind of hybrid religion that didn't even resemble true Christianity. Also, agnosticism was taking root, and that's where humans could transcend, they thought that they could transcend evil and the corruptions of the world through. Um, through self-deprivation and the strength of their will. See, the agnostics believed that they could essentially ignore the world and follow their own desires, their own impulses. They were simply looking to to themselves for the answers rather than Christ. They also held to these Greek mythological views that Zeus was the one that held all the universe together and that Atlas, the god Atlas, was the one that held up the universe. And here's an example for your reference. Maybe you've seen pictures of Atlas and uh, and uh, this picture depicts really a God who is struggling to hold the universe up. He's a God who at any time could just drop the universe and bring everything to a crashing halt. So Paul's Concern was one of helping the Colossian believers get past that fear, the fear that comes from serving and appeasing false gods to a correct theology of worship and faith to a God who is sovereign and good and all-powerful and does all things to bring glory and fame to His Son, Jesus Christ. See, church, here at Bethel, our mission is to multiply disciples whose lives are all about Him. We believe that all of life is worship and that means all of life is worship so when you go home and you watch the bears game and even if they lose you can still worship the lord can you not and you could go home and you can uh i only heard one amen on that so um and I'll, i'll move on therefore if all of life is worship and if all of life should be about jesus christ then we need a proper perspective of who Jesus Christ is. Just like the Colossians, they needed to know who Christ was, his worthiness to be worshipped, and how we are to live lives that are vertical. So Colossians chapter one, verses fifteen through eighteen, is where we're going to look to gain our proper perspective of Christ, which will lead us, I believe, to a proper worship. Let's turn there and look at it. Colossians one fifteen through eighteen. Now he is talking about Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God. the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. We see here how God brings fame and glory to his son. And the first thing that we see in verse 15 is that the father brings fame and glory to his son by making him the visible, tangible image of God as the firstborn. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says this, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is, the chief end of man is to glorify god and to enjoy him forever basically saying what's your sole purpose for being here your sole purpose for being here is uh to worship god to bring him praise to bring him honor to bring bring him glory and and to enjoy knowing him not only here on earth but forever here's the point church we're always worshiping something it's not limited to this building Worship is not limited to this building or our service times. Rather, our entire lives are devoted to pouring ourselves into something or someone. It's true. Another way to say it is we are unceasing worshipers. We aren't created to worship, but we are created worshiping. Think about it. The first first breath that we take, we're screaming for something, right? We're screaming out, hey, I need food, I don't like this place. It's all about me. It's something that's I- intrinsic in us that we're worshiping something. We're going after something. As we grow, you know, we as children, as toddlers, we're saying that's mine because I want it. It makes me feel good about me. We're always worshiping something. As we get into older years, apart from Christ, that is, you uh, start to find your identity maybe in your school or who your friends are, that sort of thing. We're always worshiping something, and then if we don't replace that worship with true worship to Christ, then it can become our jobs. It can become, become our kids. It can become our homes. It can become anything. You know, you could have a little lint collection that you absolutely love and you could worship that. So the question really is, is, what are you worshiping, church? Worship begins, true worship begins with understanding the image of the invisible God. The perfect image of God that is visible and tangible is Jesus Christ. As we read through the Gospels, we can see a visible, tangible representation of God. Jesus told his disciples, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. When we want to know God's character, his attributes, and truly see him as he is, we have no further place to look than Jesus Christ. For us to worship rightly, we must have knowledge of what we are worshiping. Jesus Christ is the pinnacle of all that we look to, adore, give all attention to, and worship. Because God the Father has chosen to make much of Jesus. Did you hear that? God the Father has chosen to make much of Jesus and to make Him the focal point of spreading His glory among all peoples. Once we understand that God is for His own glory, then we can truly delight in the fact that Jesus is the focus of worship. Author Harold Best describes God as the uniquely continuous outpourer who continuously pours Himself out between the persons of the Godhead in unceasing communication, love, love, Friendship and joy we then created in God's image are also unceasing worshipers and continuously outpouring best sums up his thoughts with this worship is the continuous outpouring of all that I am all that I do and all that I can ever become in light of a chosen or choosing God we must choose correctly what we'll pour ourselves into That's why the text declares to us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. To know Jesus rightly will mean knowing how to worship rightly. He is and should be the object of our continuous outpouring. But yet, our hearts deceive us, don't they? The Bible tells us that our heart is wicked and deceitful above all else. It lies to us. Calvin said that our hearts are idol factories. Once I've displaced one, then a multitude come up to take, pla- take that place of worship. And the person who wrote the hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, understood the deceitfulness of our hearts and highlights our proclivity to worship things other than God. He says this, O oh, to grace, how great a debtor! Daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee, Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. See, God knows our hearts are idol factories. And he knows the prescription to that. The prescription is for a far greater image than the idols or the objects that we tend to worship on this earth. That far greater image is Jesus Christ. He is the one that our wandering hearts should be bound to. The Father brings fame and glory to His Son by making Him the ultimate object of worship by placing him on this earth to be the physical visible tangible representation of the Godhead and here's what happens with worship the worship worship begins and ends and is everything in between with the gospel apart from the gospel we're just left to our cold stony hearts so if you're here and you're trying to worship and you're saying I'm going to muster up all the energy I can to, to worship God because Jacob said I had to worship God and that's what I'm supposed to do and I'm supposed to get rid of the idols apart from the gospel you can't do it. Jesus said apart from me you can do nothing. The gospel is what transforms a cold stony heart, that heart that worships lesser gods, but because of the gospel, because of the fact that Jesus Christ came as a sinless child laying in a manger. And, and he lived a sinless life. He fulfilled all the righteous requirements of law. He hung on a, on a criminal's cross and bled and died a death for you and I. That he, he is now reigning victorious over death, hell, and the grave. And he's seated at the right hand of the Father. He brings us into fellowship with that. He wants us to be part of that resurrection. That's the gospel. That's the thing that transforms us. And that's what God calls us to. Because once we get that, our hearts are transformed from stony hearts to hearts of flesh. Hearts that respond in praise, and glory, and majesty. If you know who you were before the cross and who you are after the cross, that's enough to worship. The cross is enough to worship the Lord. Can you say amen to that? Daniel Montgomery in his book, Faith Mapping, says this. We overflow in response to the gospel that has ignited our hearts. And the overflow itself is a testimony to the glory of God's gospel. The gospel has made us true worshipers. And our worship is all about the gospel. Bethel, it truly is all about him. It truly is all about him. And the text goes on to tell us that he's not only the visible tangible representation of God but he is the firstborn of all creation meaning he is the firstborn he has all the rights and privileges and experiences of a firstborn now i told you i'm the dad of i'm i'm the dad of 3 boys and each one of them have their place in order right we have first isaac second deacon third Uh, Israel, yeah, and I even hesitated before I said his name because that's how much it changes from first to the third. The firstborn, it's... uh, um... Because I, I had to think of what his name was <laughs> because it changed so much. That firstborn, he filled up every, every uh, file that we had on every computer, every phone, every, every camera that we had. He's the firstborn among grandchildren for my mom and my dad. And so they have a hall that is owed to Isaac in their house before he was even born. I mean, we had ultrasound pictures and frames everywhere. We celebrated this firstborn. We were excited about this firstborn. I can remember the first time Jema felt him kick. And she she looked at me. She said the baby's kicking. I remember where we were at We were with his, with her aunt and uncle at a restaurant in indianapolis And I remember the first time I changed his diaper in the hospital And I, I still have the bracelet that's covered in chocolate sauce from it And I, I remember saying I am in over my head in poop here. What do I do? And I remember that it sticks in my mind. I remember the first time he smiled at me I remember his first haircut I remember the first scrape on his knee. I remember all the first things because he's the firstborn. And we put so much attention to him. Now, Deacon, uh, we love Deacon, but Deacon's a different story. We forget about him sometimes. We hardly have a record that he even exists. You know, we could be walking out of the store and James would say, where's Deacon? We run back in the store and there he is like hidden in, in jeans or something playing, uh, playing in the toy aisle. And we're like, oh, it's Deacon. And he's just kind of poor middle child, right? How many middle children are here? Jesus still loves you too, okay? (laughs) So it's just that we love Isaac differently. We love all of our kids differently. But we love him because he's the firstborn. Along with all that privileges of being the firstborn comes the responsibility of being the firstborn. The responsibility of being the first to learn how to share. Those who are parents know what that's like. Or those who are our firstborn children, you know what that's like. The first to be the example of good behavior. And here's the other first. He is the first to inflict noogies on his younger brothers. What a privilege, huh? Also with the firstborn comes a responsibility, of privilege in our house, of being the one who takes the lead in taking care of the family estate once Jame and I are gone. I'm a firstborn, and uh, I know what it's like to have little brothers, and uh, how unfair it is to be the firstborn. But I also know that I got to stay up late uh, before anybody else, you know. Um, and I got a lot of other opportunities. And so basically the word telling us here in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, where it says that he, Jesus being the firstborn of all creation, is once again that the Son is worthy. Of the honor, the praise, the fame, and the glory. Because he is the firstborn. The father declaring that all he has belongs to his son. All of the father's divine nature belongs to Jesus. God knowing that he wanted many children. And so his firstborn had to be able to hold up under the rights and privileges of being a firstborn. Humanity was too frail to hold up under that responsibility. We needed a God-man who is perfect in every way and could handle all the requirements of being a firstborn perfectly. Jesus is that one. And therefore, he's worthy of all fame and glory. Jesus is the firstborn and given the rights, the authority, the power, the prestige, the honor, and the glory of the Father, which brings us to our next point of how God makes much of Jesus. That the Father brings fame and glory to his Son by sharing in the work of creating and sustaining creation. Let's look at the text together. Verse 16 says, for by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and is invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things, say all things. all things, they were created through him and for him. And verse 17 sums up the next, sums up these, these verses. And it says this, and he is before all things and in him all things hold together. We know in John chapter 1 that it says that the in the beginning was the word and we know the word is Jesus Christ, right? That in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and he was not only with God, but he was God. He was in the beginning with God and All things, there it is again, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. He is the creator, and he is the sustainer of all things. He is the giver and sustainer of life, as our text says. He is before all things. Worlds were formed by him. He is the eternal word that spoke all things into existence. That's not something any one of us can do. Only God can create something out of nothing, and not just something, but stars and planets and everything that exists came about because of the breath of Almighty God. You know, the only thing I can create with my words is an order through the drive-thru at McDonald's. I may say, Give me, let there be Big Mac, and hopefully when I get around the corner, there's Big Mac in my, in my, in my McDonald's bag. So this is a mighty God we serve. He can speak things into existence, something we can't do. I'm not sure if we have a good view on the bigness of Christ yet through this passage as it relates to the world we live in and the blessing of his providence in all things. So to help us gain a better view of Christ's bigness, his power that, that has created, I want to take a deeper look at what he's created. The earth. He created the earth where we live, where you reside. It's at a perfect tilt, which gives us amazing seasons, and it provides the perfect amount of warmth and cold to sustain life. If the tilt were just slightly off, it would cause a major shift in climate changes, which would result in the loss of plant life, sustainable water, which in turn affects our lives, because if we don't have proper amount of food and water, we could die. Also, the Earth is the only planet in our solar system that is the perfect distance from the Sun, if we're moved just slightly closer, we'll burn up. If we' move just slightly further away, we freeze up. we become an ice cube. We are the only planet to our knowledge that has the perfect position to the Sun and has an atmosphere that sustains life. This design declares a designer. This creation declares that there's a creator. God in his infinite wisdom created the earth to sit on his axis. I said axis, okay? At just the perfect angle. At just the right distance from the sun. Which, by the way, the sun is just the right size to give us the heat and energy that we need. What a wonderful creator our God is. This is not something that happened by happenstance. You know, the whole theory of... All this just kind of came together by by accident. That's kind of like you saying, "I'm going to take a, a typewriter and I'm going to arg- or take a keyboard from a computer, take all the pieces out, and I'm going to throw it up in the air, and it's all going to land land perfectly like it's supposed to." No design declares that there's a designer. Creation declares there's a creator. But He didn't stop with just us in creation. Our sun is just one of 300 billion stars within our galaxy. Did you know that scientists are still finding new solar systems? And and more galaxies within our universe. In fact, scientists say there could be close to 100 billion solar systems. We're just one of 100 billion solar systems. And on top of that, another 100 billion galaxies. Our our solar system is just one in one galaxy. And there's over 100 billion galaxies. Which means that to our current data, and it's ever-changing, ever-growing, is that there is three quintillion stars... In the universe, I, we don't have enough hands and uh, fingers and toes in the earth to count up to three quintillion, but it's three with 18 zeros after it. That's big. The speed of light can travel at a mind-blowing 186,000 miles in one second. I've not seen anything quicker than that than the last time I said, to, hey, Tony, time for dinner. I, sorry, it was cheesy. I'm sorry, but it works, I think. Have you ever seen him go to dinner? Okay, enough. We're talking about a speed so fast it could travel 6 trillion miles in just one year. This is known as a light year. But even with our super fast speed of a light year, it would take about 100,000 years to cross the Milky Way at that speed. And to move on to our universe as big as we think it is, it would take about 30 billion years at the speed of light to go through our whole universe. And here's what the text tells us, that God created this. Psalms tells us that by the breath of his mouth it is created. And it tells us he knows every star and calls them by name. Our universe is big, but God is bigger. And so Psalm 8, verse 3 through 4, highlights this. And it's on your screen. It says, when I look to your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place... What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? God is big, but he desires to be close to you. He created all of this, and the psalmist basically says, in all of this great expanse, what am I that you're mindful of? We should be mindful of that fact, that we are small and he is big. Here's a picture to put it in perspective for you you are here that's what that that arrow says you're some little dot somewhere in that universe that we can't even see right now and not only that that's the earth where that little dot is that we can't even see you're another little dot on that earth and here's the real perspective for you that you're not the center of the universe Jesus is, God is. I'm not sure if that helps you see the bigness of God. I hope it didn't melt your mind. But by him, all things were created. And that he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. The Father created all things, all these things to bring glory and fame to his Son. We get to partake in the pleasure of his creation. But let the creation lead you back to the Creator. Verse 17 goes on to tell us that in him, all things are held together. See, Genesis pulls back the curtain to allow us a sneak peek of God's creative activity. And that by his voice, all things were made. And the enduring power of the spoken word of let there be is what sustains us till this moment. Powerful. You remember I said he, his, by his word, things are created. But it not only was created, but by his very words, we are still sustaining. When he said, there, let there be light, there still is light. Is there not? What a mighty God. So this vast expanse we call universe is not only created by a spoken word, but held together in perfect balance and by his attentive eye. He's not one who just created and let creation just go on its own. He's not like, a, he's not like a, a little boy with a top who just lets it go and lets it come to a crashing halt. No, God is intimately and intricately involved in our lives and in the, in, in the sustaining of this world. See, this verse declares the loving providence of God. Once we understand that God is the all-powerful creator, it then seems reasonable that he also preserves and governs everything in the universe as well. Here's how we would define this work. And I'm not going to go into that because I don't have time to to go into that because it's a little bit longer. But I do remember this, that when God created, he created things for us to enjoy. He created these things so that we could turn it back to him. And God created you and God created me for his purposes. You may be here today and say, why did God create me? Why am I here? You may have a blemish. You may have an impediment, something that you don't like about yourself. You may be uh, follically challenged. You may not understand why hair grows down and guts grow out, right? I identify with you. I I, I hurt with you. You might not like how your nose is shaped. Or you may be like me. You're incredibly good looking. (laughs) It's a blessing and a curse. But know this, that God created you. He made you, he sustains you, he's given you life, he's given you the air that you breathe right now because he has a purpose for you. I remember a story that my mom told me that uh, when she was younger, she was watching TV and she noticed this actress's hands and she looked at those hands and she said, those are such beautiful hands. I wish I had hands like that. And she'd been reading Psalm 139 that says, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. And God brought that to her remembrance and she had this thought. God made these hands, these hands that I have. I don't need those actresses' hands because God made these hands. These hands that she had are not not actress types hands. They are they are uh, calloused hands, sturdy hands, hands that were forged through working on a farm, being outside, strong hands. It was a few years later after that that she finished her degree in nursing, and for the last twenty five years, my mom has used. Those sturdy hands to literally lift people up and put them in beds. To care for the sick, the broken, the hurting. I want, to, I want to say this to you. God made you by design, by His design for a purpose. And that purpose is to bring Him glory. Celebrate that fact. Let's continue looking at the text. Verse 18 tells us this. It actually gives us this. That He is the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning. The firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be preeminent. So the father brings fame and glory to his son by making, him the, by making the son the head of the church, the body. The scripture is not just talking about us, Bethel Church, but he's talking about the big C church, the church worldwide, the church universal. But he also is referring to us. He's talking about the worldwide church, the church that is past, present, and future. The same son who created the heavens and the earth, who placed the stars in the sky, who knows them by name, who set each planet in motion, is the same one who said in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church. The same creator is the one who created the church. Whose church is it to build? It's Christ's church. It's not my church. It's not your church. God placed Jesus as the builder. He is the head of the church. So the sufficiency would be of him. He did it so we, would, so we would rely upon him, look to him, and stay in close connection with him. And ultimately, to bring glory to him. The work we do here within Bethel Church, or maybe you're from another church and you're visiting from out of town and you belong to another church, but the church, the work that we do, the kingdom that we build, the kingdom of God, the good works are Christ's. Are from Christ preordained for us to walk in? Ephesians two ten says this: For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Bethel, let's continually remind ourselves that the church is all about Him. That Jesus, as the text says, is the one that is the head over the church. And as the head, it's all about Him. He's the one who builds. He's the one who plants. He's the one who waters. He's the one who grows ministries and ministers. Christ has been placed as the all-sufficient one so that when anything good comes in this church or out of this church, and you know what? God has been doing some amazing things right here at Cedar Lake. He's been touching lives through this campus, reaching lost people. Glory to God. Let, us, let that stuff lead us back to, to the praise of His goodness. And if anything bad comes, let, us, let it lead us back complete dependency on jesus christ it's all about him our response here is that we daily look to live a life that is surrendered and submitted to jesus christ and his leadership in all that we do we can do this by being a people of prayer communicating with christ sharing our heart with him and asking for him to share his heart with us we need to be a people who look to the sufficiency of god's word in all matters of life daily dependence on him declares that we are not in control that we are not the head that he is the head we are not going to try to take the lead jesus it's yours we will fully trust his sovereign leadership which brings us to the really the last point and the father brings fame and glory to his son by making him superior In all things. The Bible says in verse 18, at the end of verse 18, that He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. There's that word firstborn again, the firstborn from the dead. That in everything, are you getting the picture here? There's all things and everything. I think He's got it covered. Everything means everything. All things means everything. It basically is declaring the sovereignty of God over all things that He might be preeminent. So in the Bible, the firstborn refers to origin and rank. The son's origin was from God. That's where he came from, God the Father. And the rank that the Father placed him was to be the firstborn of creation and from the dead, declaring in this passage that he is the author and finisher of our faith, that Christ is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And this leads us to the fact that Jesus Christ is sovereign over all. If he is the first and the last in all things Fall in, fall in between under his reign and rule. Do they not? A.W. Pink said this. He said, if he's not sovereign of all, then he's not sovereign at all. We need to see that Jesus in, is in control of all things. And there's a strong implication for us today in the fact that he declared that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. The father declaring that Christ is the firstborn from the dead implies and it really shouts to us the gospel truth that my son is the best Offering I could make. Because He is my offering, God is saying, you can cease from your work. You can cease with trying to fix yourself. You could stop trying to be your own Savior and get to heaven on your own good works. God is for God and He exists solely for His glory. And therefore, He wants you to understand that you can't outgive God. And He shows that through the sacrifice of the cross. Being the firstborn from the dead shows us that death couldn't hold Christ and that he plans to bring others into this new life, this resurrection from the dead. Spiritual death is the greatest death of all. We were all dead and lost in our trespasses totally without purpose for being. The question of our fallen humanity was crying out, why am I here? But God who is rich in mercy made us alive in Christ Jesus. The Bible says that he did this even while we were in our sin, even while we were sinners. And he did this all to the praise of his glory. This being the firstborn from the dead leads us to the main point of this verse in the, in the passage. And that is that he would be preeminent in everything. And preeminent means this, that he is highly distinguished or outstanding, standing out among all others because of superiority in a field or activity, Can we all agree that Jesus is outstanding and superior, uh, standing out among all others in every field and every activity? Can we agree on that, church? After all this, text shows that he created all things. And by him, all of the universe is held together. He's not a God that's holding up the universe and struggling to do it. But he's a God who's in complete control. He is the source and the supply and the head of the church. And he is the one who paid the way for us to have eternal life. Philippians tells us that because of this, he now has the name that is above all other names. A name that is superior, outranking all other names. The name of Jesus. And is worthy to be worshipped. The father doesn't want his son just to be a second thought. That's why he made him the firstborn of creation and the firstborn of the dead. He wants all attention, all adoration, all worship, all of your life living completely and totally for the glory of the Son. We see in these verses that the Father did everything to bring glory and fame to His Son, and therefore we should too. This means living a life that is pleasing and praiseworthy so He might be glorified in our life and speech. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says this, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all. For the glory of God. So once again, when you go home today and you turn on the Bears and uh, and whatever they whatever happens, whatever happens at the end of the fourth quarter, you're going to give glory to God. You're going to go home and you're going to eat your meal to the glory of God. You're going to talk to your family to the glory of God. You're going to go to work tomorrow to the glory of God. It's an attitude of, of worship that we must have. Living with Christ as a central focus to all you do brings him glory. And it fills your life with a God-sized direction and purpose. So we should avoid the tendency to compartmentalize him to a weekend worship service or a small group or to a ministry team. What he wants is our whole heart church. That in our everyday, our eating and drinking, getting up and going to bed, daily to do's, that we make much of Him by making Him central in all we are. May we resonate with the Reformers who declared sola Deo gloria, meaning that we exist for the glory of God alone. So church, what are we going to do with this fact that Jesus Christ is placed as preeminent in everything? Are you living a life that makes Him first place? What areas of your life, of our lives, do we place Christ as secondary? Are we fully living for his fame and his glory and preeminence in all things? God the Father does. What is that thing that you think about most? What is it that drives your time, that drives the use of your time, your money, and your abilities? Friend, let me say this. That's what you're worshiping. And as we've seen, the Father has done everything to bring glory to the Son, and we should too. So let me also ask, if you're here and you never made Jesus the leader and forgiver of your life, that's the first step to making Him first place in your life. And if you're hoping to just hang around here in hopes that you're going to become a good person, a better person, without surrendering your life to Christ, you're missing the boat. Make it right today with Christ. Surrender your will to be the center of focus and make Christ eternal. Can you say amen to that? Church, let's pray.